In 2019, the Nordic Prime Ministers signed an ambitious agreement to become the first carbon-neutral region in the world by 2030. Also in 2019, the European Union signed a Green Deal that aims to achieve net-zero carbon emissions from the continent by 2050. Then, the COVID-19 pandemic radically changed our lives, triggering the biggest blow to the world economy since the Great Depression. Some researchers fear that the new coronavirus and economic downturn will slow the green transition. Others argue that the pandemic is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to unite people and countries and accelerate the fight against climate change. So this is my question. Will COVID-19 end up infecting even the green transition? I'm Afton Halloran, and you're listening to the Nordic Talks podcast. So I wanted to learn more about how the COVID-19 pandemic will impact the green transition. During the lockdown, I called up a former EU commissioner, a Swedish extinction rebellionist, and the executive director of the European Environment Agency, the EEA. Um, Hence, where are you right now in the world? (laughs) I'm actually uh, in Belgium, outside of Antwerp, where my family is, my wife and, and kids. And I actually took one of the last flights to Brussels uh, the day after the prime minister first announced that there would be a lockdown and that uh, the borders would close. This is Hans Bruinings. Hans is the executive director of the EEA. As an agency under the EU, the EEA's task is to provide independent information on the environment. And according to Hans, the pandemic has the potential to both be an accelerator and an inhibitor for the green transition, depending on how policymakers, business leaders, and citizens react. When we look back on this moment, let's say a decade from now, how will we perceive it? Will we have remembered it as an accelerator or as an inhibitor? Well, the easy answer is that will depend, but it's also the complex answer. I I think uh, it could be an accelerator uh, if we look at this crisis in what I call a contextualized way. And that means that we understand the origins of this type of crisis. And uh, I mean, there is all sorts of research that hints at our fundamental relationship to biodiversity, for example, the the complexity of a globalized society that makes us more vulnerable. Uh, I mean, there are all sorts of ways of looking at this crisis, including social aspects of distribution, including the role of science data, uh, but also uh, more forward-looking type knowledge, the the role of uh, public institutions and their preparedness for this. So if we contextualize this crisis well, we could learn a lot of lessons that will serve us well over the next decade and decades. If we do this right, we can learn a lot from it. If we don't do it right, and that's what I call the decontextualized response, which is let's uh, pump money into the economy to get it going again without asking too many other questions. And that means then playing on yeah, tax breaks or on uh, subsidies or on you know all sorts of other things without placing them in this context. 
then I think it uh, could uh, be very unhelpful as we already see that in some places people are closing in on their own smaller reality and only focusing on aspects that are not linked to, to the broader questions that are framed in the SDGs in a global context or that are framed in a European Green Deal context when we speak about the EU. Corny Hillegor agrees with Hans's prediction that the COVID-19 pandemic has the potential to both speed up and slow down the green transition. But either way, she's convinced that it will influence our ability to achieve the sustainable development goal on climate action. Obviously, uh, it will impact our ability to be ambitious in the climate field. I, I think there's no way around that. But the question is whether we will use this as an opportunity to actually get serious about our climate ambitions or whether we sort of waste this crisis, waste this opportunity. Connie knows quite a bit about climate policy in the EU. In 2004, she was appointed Minister of Environment in Denmark. Then, she served as the European Commissioner for Climate Action from 2010 to 2014. According to both Hans and Connie, there is reason for optimism. They both see early signs that, if handled responsibly, the pandemic can accelerate the green transition and increase our chances of reaching the Sustainable Development Goal on climate action. Here's Connie. I think that uh, there will be a bigger respect for knowledge, for science, for facts. Uh, and I think that there is a good chance that there will be a bigger openness, a bigger will to change, that we will not see change as, as quote-unquote dangerous as we might have thought just some months back. I mean, in that sense, the imagination now is maybe, uh, it's a bit more easy to imagine that things can be different than business as usual because we have seen during this crisis, of course, a lot of uh, evil stuff that we don't want to see again, but we have seen and, and, and learned from ourselves that actually we can live through changes and the core values and what is important to us and what matters the most is still there. So I think that the psychological mood in front of a societal change has changed to the benefit of reaching the, the climate targets, provided that the political leaders, the business leaders, the community leaders really dare now to continue to lead when it comes to climate change. All right, so apparently the pandemic is a window of opportunity for the green transition. A lot of uncomfortable but effective decisions have been made in a very short period of time. But what can we carry with us from this experience that can help us to solve other crises? We have a unique opportunity to uh, really change, uh, transform the society into something much more sustainable. This is Ranjil Larsson. She's a freelance journalist based in Gothenburg, Sweden, and a member of the Swedish branch of the international civil movement Extinction Rebellion. The politicians have shown that they can uh, take very drastic measures when there is a crisis. Uh, and um, yeah, and they're able to take bold decisions uh, that are sort of not very comfortable for the general public. 
and also that people are prepared to change their behavior and their lives when there is a crisis. Uh, so I think that, and also that they listen to the science. The, 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 the scientists say that, oh, we have this problem and it's uh, this contagious uh, pandemic. And um, so we listen, the politicians listen very much to the scientists. So I think, yeah, we have to do the same, of course, with the climate crisis. Extinction Rebellion is an international movement that uses non-violent civil disobedience in an attempt to halt mass extinction and minimize the risk of social collapse. Needless to say, climate change is on top of their agenda. I have also been part of like, you know, ordinary demonstrations uh, where you run with your banner and in the street. But I mean, who cares, <laughs> really? Uh, and uh, so... I, uh, and I feel that, I hope that Extinction Rebellion can make a difference uh, by um, using civil disobedience, because it has worked in history before. And uh, I mean, we have no other option. What could we do? Uh, we have to try everything. And I also think uh, a key is that we need to change on a systemic level. And XR is very... I mean, we don't want to blame the individual. It's really important to us uh, because we have to change the system. I mean, no matter how much I recycle or take the bike to work, it won't save the world. So, yeah. And also, I think a key is doing things together. Raumhill has participated in several demonstrations, including roadblocks and other peaceful rebellions using civil disobedience, one of their main tactics. And the aim is really to make people wake up, uh, to disturb uh, the ordinary life, business as usual, to disturb business as usual. Uh, and in London, because there were so many, I mean, people were coming from all over UK to London uh, and they were able to close down London for 10 days. And because of that, they also made the politicians to declare climate emergency. But then, of course, they have to act. They can't just de declare climate emergency. But now there is also sort of a shift in the strategy to also more uh, reveal who are the, um, uh, the worst emitters, like the fossil fuel industry. So, for example, in Sweden, we have done actions together with other climate movements and environmental movements um, uh, towards Prim, uh, which is an oil company, and they want to expand their plant in Lysekil, which is on the west coast here. And then they would be the biggest emitter in Sweden. And that is, of course, crazy. It's against everything we have, all the international petitions we have signed and so on. So that is another example that we are also a bit changing. But the, the logic behind this, like the, the road blockage is the traffic, to block the traffic is also... Um, yeah, to disturb ordinary people, really. I mean, to make them realize that we are in such a bad situation that I am prepared to sit here and be, be uh, dragged away by the police and uh, maybe sentenced, um, yeah, for this. Uh, so, and I must say that, of course, some people get frustrated and angry with us. But there are quite a few people who also support us, even if we stop them in their cars and they are on their way somewhere and they say, oh, I understand why you are doing this. I support your cause. Mm -hmm. 
Thornhill and other Extinction Rebellion activists are calling for more political action. Coney argues that the pandemic has shown that citizens around the world are willing to give politicians the license to lead. And this is a crucial learning for the climate crisis, a crisis that we all need to fight together. Leaders can get the license to lead if they take on the responsibility. So I think that there are some some rather interesting things to build on because we will need leadership in politics, in business, in society in order to, to make the green transition. And we have seen now that actually the public acceptance of leadership is there if you really take your responsibility. At the European Environment Agency, where Hans works, they measure carbon emissions and air pollution. And their data shows that the new coronavirus pandemic is having a significant, positive short-term effect on the climate. But at the same time, Hans warns about being too optimistic in regard to the sudden drop in emissions and air pollution. The change is a result of temporary circumstances at a very high societal cost, and governments are not willing to pay the price in the long term. Because of this, most economies will try to bounce back to normal as soon as possible. Yes, there is a very significant drop in uh, air pollution. There is a significant drop in noise pollution. Yes, we see impacts on biodiversity. So all of that, all of that is true. But we have to be clear, this is not the way to reach uh, environment and climate objectives. The cost to society is way too high. Hans and I are both happy that the news coverage of wildlife replacing smog and air pollution in cities can make people reflect and reconsider their contribution to things like global warming. But he cautions against being too naive about people making fundamental changes to their lives. Then you have those who say, well, this is the start of a fundamental reset. People will now go to a very different lifestyle People are realizing what a wonderful opportunity this is to uh, reflect and to, you know, I I think that some of this might rub off and some people might be making those reflections, but I, I belong to those who, I'm not too naive about that, yeah? I, I think we will go back to certain habits and once the economy takes off, it will not be an automatic that our consumption habits will change or are, you know, so we, we need to be realistic there. Um, when the media is focusing on those elements, as, as long as they are framing this as um, an impact of something that is uh, coming at a very high cost to society, yeah, then I'm, I'm fine with it. As long as it's framed as an element of reflection, I'm fine with it. So... What is actually needed to encourage people to act? Here's Randhul's perspective. What we need when it comes to climate change, because we have known this for, what is it, 30 years, more than that now. We need a lot more of storytelling, for example, where people tell their personal stories and how this will affect our lives. I mean, it is already, of course, affecting people's lives in the South and so on and in other parts of the world. I mean, you have to know that there might be starvation, there might be a lot of conflicts and so on. So I think we have to tell those stories, but also stories about what a more sustainable way of living could look like. So the question remains, 
Will politicians show the necessary leadership needed to achieve the sustainable development goal on climate action? Or will the green transition suffer as a result of the economic downturn triggered by the pandemic? When talking about political leadership, both Hans and Connie highlight the importance of collaboration between institutions, countries, and businesses. One of the big risks in this whole corona thing is that what we have seen with the corona crisis is in a way a very, very national approach. On the other hand, I think that we have also seen that the absence of international cooperation makes these kind of big crises worse than would else have been the case. So in a way, I think that we see living proof what it means to be able to work together, uh, to share knowledge, to disseminate information. Um, one of the big risks here could be that now in getting out of the crisis, if all states sort of do it on their own and, and, and think that they can sort of re-nationalize everything, I, I just think that that is uh, really also seen from, from business. That's uh, the wrong path to, to enter. We will very, very fast see in each country People would argue, why should we do this and that to the benefit of the climate if our neighboring countries are not doing it, if our competitors are not doing it? So at least we need to have a very, very strong European core doing this. And then hopefully EU could continue to sort of lead the international efforts there. And Connie urges policymakers not to repeat the same mistakes made during the most recent global crisis the 2008 financial crisis. To put the green transition on hold again would be catastrophic, both for the planet and the economy. We can learn that it is extremely expensive to use a financial crisis as an excuse for halting efforts too much for 10 years. And we cannot afford to repeat that once again, simply because the time is running out. And, and I think that that is where the big difference is today. Uh, back in 2009, uh, there were still states and leaders and business people who had not understood uh, the real urgency of the issue. I think we are in a different place today. Uh, unfortunately, on the sad background that, uh, that uh, climate change has materialized exactly as the scientists had warned us. Uh, but uh, no, no matter the, the sad uh, background and reason, I think that today more people get it that we need to, to take action now. And, and that gives me some hope. Connie sees positive signs that some politicians are rising to the challenge and taking leadership in handling the pandemic, at least in the Nordics and in the EU. I think that there is a huge uh, potential in, in the fact that Europe and EU seems to really stick to the Green Deal. Uh, they really stick to that this is not just sort of a, uh, the fashion of, of a month or a year. This is something that now when we have to, to make the reforms in the aftermath of this crisis, we have to do the, the packages, we really have to make whatever we do consistent with the aspirations in the Green Deal. And I think that can make 
a huge difference. I also believe that that can be the opportunity for Europe to modernize Europe, to sort of work with its digital potential and the green potential in one. This can actually turn out to be the turning point so that we could really modernize our societies. Is it easy? For sure not. Is it a given thing that we will end up there in Europe? No, it's not, because I also understand that there are member states and interests and stakeholders that would try now to make all this green stuff go away in light of the corona crisis. But I still think that uh, the EU Commission and the EU institutions are really trying their very best to ensure that the way we get out of the corona crisis is consistent with what we must achieve in order to to make the green transition. And and thus, will, will we inspire the rest of the world? If we do it smartly, it could be an inspiration. Hans is particularly pleased that countries like the UK and Belgium have decided to invest in green mobility initiatives and urban parks during the lockdowns. For example, in uh, mobility patterns, there are now cities like Brussels where uh, the the local government is in a very rapid way now uh, adding new bike lanes, yeah, because they they see the benefit of that now more than before. There are those places where I think people ha- are gaining a lot higher um, sort of. Uh, understanding of the value of local green, local parks, uh, local nature. So that that can feed into uh, policy trajectories over time, which I think would be useful. But both Hans and Connie agree that perhaps the toughest political issue will be how governments approach job creation. And the whole trick is how do we make the environmental gains that we need to make without locking down the economy by by keeping growth and all this. So uh, how do we do that? I think that there are uh, lots of things that can be done now in light of the crisis where we will need to focus a lot on job and instant job creation. What could that be? That could very much be, for instance, energy efficiency, uh, renovating buildings, Uh, more circular economy solutions where you sort of limit the material use. I mean, things like that is to the benefit of the economy. It creates instant jobs and it benefits the climate. And that's the kind of solutions we should be looking for, sort of uh, initiatives that tick all those boxes. Hans hopes that more governments take climate action into account, when they design health packages for hard-hit industries like aviation. If we are working with sectors to, to get out of the crisis, you could attach a number of conditions to the money and the support. There are now countries like Denmark who are saying if you are a, a company that is not uh, contributing to the tax base, you cannot count on... Uh, on our support. Well, we could say to airlines, yes, we will support you, but there are conditions to that. Um, and those conditions can have to do with uh, a serious discussion about how they would fit under a climate neutrality trajectory, a serious 
talk about cost internalization, a serious talk about potential taxes on kerosene. I mean, there are all sorts of ways to connect these two trajectories that go well beyond the the stories that we, we often see in the more popular media now. This idea is supported by Connie, who believes that the total impact of emissions should be measured when governments help suffering businesses. I think that in all big packages, crisis packages that are being constructed and, 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 and composed these days, it should be a, a key principle simply to measure the uh, emission impacts of all these packages. I mean, it would be a waste of taxpayers' money if first we spend billions and billions and billions, so to speak, to restore business as usual and, and the old order. And then when all these billions are spent, then we have o only contributed to making the climate challenge even bigger. I think most people can see that that is not a smart way of spending uh, society's uh, money. Ronhild and her fellow rebellionists have a pretty clear message to world leaders. It's quite simple. We have to stop burning fossil fuels. And we have to do it now because we have waited. I mean, if we would have started this transition maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we could have a smooth transition. I'm afraid we won't have that now. But as we have seen with COVID, uh, we can also change society quite fast. I mean, we have locked down almost the whole world. No one is, almost no one is going by plane, for example. So, and I think that, and one thing I would wish is that a lot more countries would try this uh, uh, model with citizen assemblies, because I think this is such a big issue. And honestly, I think a lot of politicians uh, don't know what to do. I mean, they are lost and they have to uh, take help from people in their countries. And um, and people are quite wise. I mean, uh, people can take good decisions if they are not, and especially if uh, they don't uh, have to be re-elected or strive to be re-elected in four years, because all of the decisions might not be so popular. But I think it's it's a question about that you have to get to understand how bad the situation is. That is like the first step. And I'm not sure that all the politicians have done that yet because it's it's a total, because we are so entangled in this fossil fuel capitalism that it's hard to think outside the box. It's hard to reimagine something else. Uh, and we need politicians who have, uh, who have visions for the, what the new society will look like. Many consider the Nordic countries to be global pioneers in the green transition. So in our talks, I asked Hans, Connie and Ranhild about what the Nordics can do to maintain that role during and after the COVID-19 crisis. Let's hear from Ranhild again. A lot of people in Sweden or in the Nordic countries might think that, oh, we are on track. They are figuring this out and someone else will solve it. So I think the role of XR is to wake people up and make them understand that if we don't act and put a lot of pressure on the politicians, they won't act. I read that in, uh, I think it was in Paris, for example, they will expand the bike 
biking roads and so on and make it much more easy to go by bike. And I hope that this will happen in Sweden too or in the Nordic countries, of course. But as I said before, we have this unique opportunity to really change society now. But I am also very afraid that... uh, (laughs) A lot of people are just waiting to go back to business as usual. Uh, but I mean, what we were doing before was not good. So we have to change. Connie believes that the Nordics have a unique opportunity to deliver a strong and necessary message to the world. Many people would be convinced that what the, we're talking about here, yeah, that makes good sense. But in many societies, in many cities, in many countries, in many businesses, they are unsure as to how do we exactly do it. And that is where the the Nordic countries and companies could come in and say, this is how we do it. And of course, the very, very big fear that many societies would have is, okay, we understand the seriousness of the climate change challenge. But if we actually did what we ought to do about it, how would that impact the wealth uh, in our society and the well-being? And that is, of course, where the Nordic countries could show that actually there's no contradiction in being rich, prosperous, welfare states, while at the same time being serious about reducing emissions and seeking uh, environmental-friendly solutions. And according to Hans, the Nordics will maintain their leadership position within the green transition. The leadership, political leadership in the Nordics, when it comes to making strong commitments to the Paris Agreement on climate change, but also to circular economy and to the protection of of natural capital, uh, is, is, I would say, world leading. Uh, If if you think of uh, the current governments uh, in the Nordic countries, uh, and their commitments and their their government programs on climate change, they go a long way towards 2030 in, uh, in becoming uh, the first climate neutral continent, as the EU is stating. What I also find uh, encouraging is that you see a new generation of leadership uh, coming in the Nordics. It's, it's a younger generation, which you could interpret as they, they have their roots, their intellectual uh, roots as adults much more in the 21st century. And they also have a whole professional, but also life uh, history and future in front of them in that 21st century. I think that is obvious as well. And and in many cases, uh, it's also younger women that are in, in this role, which again is unique, I think, to the Nordics. It's, I always say it's the only region on the planet where if you go to a so-called high-level meeting of any sort, you don't know in advance whether the majority will be men or women. Yeah? Whereas in any other place, you know it's going to be men. Yeah? And so I, I think, yeah, in many ways, uh, the Nordic region uh, has that going for it. And if you cannot do it with all of those trump cards, yeah, which other region in the world can do it? You know, that is a real question we need to ask. Here at the Nordic Talks podcast, we want to inspire our listeners to be change makers. So at the end of my conversation with Hans and Connie, I asked them what actions we can take as individuals. I think you should uh, think about the way you consume things. 
I think you should be more conscious about what you choose to to eat and how things are produced. I think you should look more into the goods that you buy. How is that produced? Uh, what kind of signal do you send to those producing our goods when you consume? I think you could think about your own transportation. I mean, they're really, really many small things that you can do. And then people would say, yes, but will that do the trick? Well, if uh, we do it in the Nordic countries, if Europe does it more than 500 million people, I mean, it will send strong signals and it will contribute to the change that we need so badly. I think that the, the two big areas are food, where people can make choices of what they eat. yeah, uh, And that also has a link with health, of course because Europe has probably the safest food system on the planet, but our food habits are not necessarily the most healthy uh, habits, not for ourselves and not for the planet. Yeah, And the second thing is, of course, our mobility. Those are two choices that we make almost on a daily basis. And they have a quite direct impact on uh, yeah, emissions, but also on other uh, forms of pollution and on quality of life issues. Then, of course, we also choose uh, the place where we live and the type of house we live in or apartment. That also has quite an impact and also the type of investments we do into it. Yeah. Um, so those, those, I would say, have an immediate impact. Speaking to Connie and Hans, it's clear to me that we as individuals have the power to make real differences with our choices. Ranhild takes it even further. You have to start at the personal level. I think the individual level is important as well. You can't just say that uh, it's it's the system. I don't have to do anything because I think it's really important to try to change your way of living in order to show that it's possible to do that. Uh, but then my second advice would, of course, be to join XR or some other activist group because it's also very empowering to be part of a movement where people strive to change society to something better. It really, it's the only thing that makes me feel hopeful is that when people really take this step. But it's, I don't know, but in Sweden we are not so used to civil disobedience. So it's, we are very used to go and vote every fourth year and the politicians will fix this and yeah, because they have built this society and we have been quite well off in Sweden so, and in the Nordic countries. So I think we have to rethink our role in society and become much more active and to strengthen really democracy by taking more part in it. And a good way is to, uh, <laughs> is to join XR and start doing civil disobedience. I mean, it feels very strange to be dragged away by the police, but... Also, when I did that uh, the first time, I felt so convinced that I'm doing the right thing and that I'm on the right side of history. And I want to be able to look my kids in the eye and say that, okay, I did what I could. So in the future, when you look back on the year 2020, how are you going to remember your own actions? Thank you for listening to the Nordic Talks podcast. I'm Afton Halloran.